0: In the Spirit of God, that we may speak Your Word, say those things which are needful for the people to hear. But more importantly, Father, we thank You for speaking to each and every one of us. Open our eyes, Lord. Give us the Spirit of wisdom and revelation, and the knowledge of You. Open our eyes that we may see what is the hope of Your calling, what are the riches of the glory of Your inheritance in the saints, and show us, Lord, the exceeding greatness of Your power that works in us as believers. Father, change us this day. We give the Spirit of God pre-reigning course to have His way in us and in this service. We ask, Father, that You would cause us to be conformed to things that are said and things that You minister to our hearts, that we would be conformed more into the image of Christ than we were when we came in. We ask this in the precious and holy name of Jesus, and thank You for it. Amen. Amen. You may be seated praise the lord i 'll invite you to turn your Bible to John chapter fourteen we 've been uh, teaching a series on the name of Jesus, and we want to look a little bit further that uh, in that direction now, as you turn to John chapter fourteen, let me um, um, mention again I know i 've said this before or at least said parts of this before, but um, the, these uh, these chapters john fourteen fifteen and sixteen are are very very precious and dear to me and and uh, and and there's, I'm aware that there are things that are there that I haven't seen yet. I, I can't get away from them. Uh, that uh, I know that when the Lord deals with me about something like that, I know that there's there's more that He wants to show me. Um, the best estimates uh, that that we can give on the the writing of the Gospel of John was that it was about 93 or 94 A.D. John is an older man. He's probably in his 90s. Uh, We don't know exactly the the dates or the the numbers to assign to it. Uh, But uh, somewhere around 93 or 94 A.D. is when uh, when the Gospel of John was written. Now think about what that means. That's 60 years after Jesus died and was raised from the dead. So the church has been in operation for 60 years before John ever writes this. Uh, It's about 50 years after John's brother James was killed and beheaded by Herod Agrippa. In um, uh, Acts chapter 12. It's about 27, 28 years maybe. After um, Peter and Paul were crucified. Or or martyred. Um, Tradition tells us that they were crucified. We don't know that for sure. But we do know they were martyred. It's about 23 or 4 years after Jerusalem was destroyed by Rome. And the the temple was destroyed. That which Jesus uh, prophesied. Now. Because of that, there's been, there's been a 23 or so year period after the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem where Judaism is pretty much undone. I mean, there's, uh, there's no sacrifice taking place. There's no high priesthood in operation for the last 23 years-ish um, before John writes this. That's why John's letters are so much different than Peter's and, and Paul's. Uh, we have all the records. They have all the records, I should say. Uh, at, at the time, Paul writes this of the letters that are written by Peter to the church, the letters that are written by Paul to the church. As a matter of fact, they had more of what Paul wrote to the church than we have because we know to the Corinthians that there's a, uh, one letter that was lost. The first letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, uh, we don't have record of. And then the third letter that he wrote to the Corinthians, apparently he wrote four. The third letter he wrote, he refers to as being a real severe letter. So they had these things. They had more than we have. So, since we know Second Timothy chapter three verse sixteen says all Scripture is given by the inspiration of God, why, at the end of John's life, some twenty-three years after Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple was destroyed, some uh, we don't know to what extent the the uh, uh, the letters to the church were, um, uh, were were gathered together, but we do know that they were circulated, and so there were there were copies and different things like that. There was a, the, com, the the New Testament was complete. My point is, the New Testament was complete except for the writings of John, except for the book of uh, the Gospel of John, the three letters that he wrote, and um, uh, to the church, and then the um, uh, the book of Revelation, which we understand he wrote last, all within a three or four period, uh, year period of time span. So, since they had all the letters to the church except for the Gospel of John at the time that he wrote it, why did the Holy Spirit inspire him to write it? What was it that was missing? And I use that word carefully. I don't know if it's uh, the most accurate way to say it or not, but hopefully you'll understand what I say, what I mean when I say it that way. What was it that was missing from the letters to the church or the four gospels, the other three gospels that they have record of? What was missing? that the Holy Ghost wanted to impress upon the church and leave with the church before John, the last of the apostles, goes off the scene. Well, in my thinking, reading the book of John, and it's written in very casual form, uh, it's, uh, it's almost like um, uh, John writes a, a letter uh, that's divided into chapters and verses later on, by, for reference sake, uh, about his friend named Jesus. It's a very informal letter. And there's nothing that stands out to me in the book of John more than the information that he shares about the last night that Jesus was with the disciples at the Last Supper, the night that he was betrayed. And that's what's contained in the 14th, 15th, and 16th chapters of John, the gospel that bears his name. Now, the 14th, 15th, and 16th chapters of John, there's one theme, and that theme is because I go to my Father. Everything Jesus says, everything that that, uh, surrounds uh, everything that Jesus said surrounds the one thing, the one thought, because I go unto my Father. He starts off in the first part of John chapter 14 trying to convince them that he's going to the Father and, and gets a little bit of resistance and argument from them, to be honest with you. They don't understand what he's saying, that he's going to the Father, but he'll be returning and then he'll be leaving again. He they don't understand that that's a reference to the resurrection. John, of course, looking back some 60 years later, realizes what these things meant. So the theme of John 14, 15, and 16, the information that was missing that John elaborates to a great degree by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost was simply Jesus saying, because I go to my father. Now, another way to say that, I think maybe a better way to say that is because Jesus went to the father, he's giving instruction to the church. In other words, because I go unto my Father is the theme because here's what I want you to do while I'm gone or after I'm gone. So John 14, 15, and 16 is really Jesus' first and most significant instructions to the church about what to do after he's gone. And nothing stands out in the 14th, 15th, and 16th chapters of John in that instruction he gives to the church more than the use of his name. John gives us information about what Jesus said about his name that none of the other gospel writers gave us. Now, we know that the name was important because the gospel writers, the other gospel writers, identify the name of Jesus and the use of the name of Jesus during his earthly ministry. But John 14, 15, and 16 is about Jesus saying, here's what I want you to do with my name after I'm gone. And none of the other gospel writers give us that. Paul gives us some information about the name that was given unto Jesus. Philippians chapter 2, for example says, because Jesus came and became obedient unto unto death, even the death of the cross, wherefore God has highly exalted him and given given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord. So we've got information about the name. We see the use of the name. But John, uh, the uh, the book of Acts tells us how the early church used the the, uh, the name of Jesus. But without John 14, 15, and 16, how would we know that they knew to use it? I mean, we're left with what the, much of the modern-day church says, and that is, well, they had something we don't have. Well, everything that they did, all the miracles that they did that so much of the church world says passed away were done in the name of Jesus as clearly identified in the book of Acts. So if, if the, the, the miracles and the signs and the wonders that they did were only for them and not for us, but they did them in the name of Jesus, then the name of Jesus has to be different now than it was then. See, the church says, well, it was because they were apostles. That's the one thing that Peter identified was not the case when he used the name of Jesus in Acts chapter 3. He said, why do you look on us after they healed the man at the, the crippled man at the beautiful gate? Why look ye on us as if by our own power or our own holiness we had made this man to walk? Now, those are the two things that the modern-day church says that the early church had that we don't have. The apostles had some special place with God, which would be a holy place, or they had some special power that we don't have. And Peter said on both of them, it's not it. Well, he ought to know, shouldn't he? I know it it contradicts a lot of theologians today, but I'm going to go with Peter. Since he was the one involved. He said, it's not by our own power. It's not by our own holiness. It's by the name of Jesus. Well, if it was by the name of Jesus that they did the great works, if it was by the name of Jesus that they did the miracles, and the name of Jesus never changes, Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever, Hebrews says then why can't we do the same works that they did? We can and should. So let's look at some things. Let's look at about five verses of Scripture, five different uh, places where Jesus identifies the use of his name for the church after he's gone. John chapter 14, beginning in verse 12. Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father." Verse 13, and whatsoever you shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. I can't read this verse of Scripture without making the the same uh, explanation that I have before. And forgive me if you're getting tired of hearing this, but I want it to sink in. The word ask is not the word request. If you look this word up in the Greek, it means to call for, to require, to demand. It's a legal term. It's the same demand that you uh, would, would uh, make of the bank when you write a check. You're exercising rights according to a contract. It's a legal relationship. That's what Jesus is saying. He's not saying, here's what you'll ask of God in my name. He's saying, here's what you'll demand as your rights and privileges. Here's what you'll do. Here's how you'll place a demand on your rights and privileges. Your legal rights and your legal privileges. Which belong to you in my name. Whatsoever you shall call for require demand in my name. That will I do. That the father may be glorified in the son. I wonder if Jesus is still interested in glorifying the father through his name today. If not then his attitude has changed over the years. It was more important to him in the early days of the church for the Father to be glorified than it would be today. Any chance of that? Certainly not. Whatsoever you shall call for, or require, or demand in my name, that will I do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Verse 14, if you shall ask, call for, or require, or demand anything in my name, I will do it. Now, why don't we believe that? It's obvious the church doesn't. I'm not talking about you as an individual. I hope that, that, that you are an exception. But the modern day church doesn't believe that. Why? Well, Pastor Mike, I tried that one time and it didn't work. Oh. Well, that's what Jesus said. And these things show you try in my name. I think that's what happened a lot of times. We've tried things to see what God would do. That's not operating according to the legal rights and privileges. You don't write a check to see what the bank's going to do. You know how the system works. You operate according to the system. Look with me over to chapter 15. Jesus said in verse 7, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask. Same word, call for, require, demand. Legal term. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. Now, he says it's conditional. He says it's conditional, which may mean that the modern day church that says we tried that and it didn't work may not have met the conditions of abiding in him and his word abiding in them. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall call for, require, demand what you will, what you will, what you will. You know, there's so much, there's so much teaching and, and talk about uh, praying in the will of God and, and, and God's will in the earth and if it, God wants it, it'll happen and if he doesn't want it, it won't happen and whatever doesn't happen that we want must not have been God's will and all this other kind of junk. When that's not the way Jesus talks at all. Jesus said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, he's talking about relationship and knowledge relationship and knowledge you shall ask what you will well how do we know that what we will is what God wills because if his word abides in you you already know his will his word is his will folks I got to tell you once you start learning what the word says and and accept it as truth it cuts down a lot on, on things you need to pray and ask God about If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. I want to attach verse 8 to it even though it doesn't have this word ask. But it tells the purpose from God's standpoint, from God's perspective. About you receiving what you will if you meet the criteria. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask, demand what you will and it shall be done unto you. Herein. Herein. In other words, it being done unto you is the reason that my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so shall you be my disciples. Now notice that phrase, that you bear much fruit. Now what would we identify as the fruit-bearing reason? Well, he just said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask, call for, require, demand anything in my name. What you're, literally, what you will. That seems to include anything and everything. And it shall be done unto you. And that's what glorifies God. That you bear much fruit. In other words. You having things done for you. Supernaturally. In the name of Jesus. Glorifies God. Can we simplify it a little bit further. And say. God wants you to get results. Now the reason I say it that simply. Or or trying to say it. If I could find a simpler way to do it. I would. I'll keep working at it. But the reason I say it that way is because so many people have a hard time believing God wants them to have success. The church has taught us, I mean the church world, certainly not the Bible, but the church world has taught us that God wants you to suffer through life. Well, that doesn't sound like what Jesus is saying, does it? If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall call for or require what you will in my name and it shall be done. That doesn't sound like suffering to me. I I, I for one don't will to suffer. So I'm not going to be calling for the suffering. How about you? See if I'm I'm that smart. Even me. Well where do we get the idea that God wants us to barely get by. And not have enough. And and suffer and, and be sick. And have all this kind of trouble in life. And, folks, I would submit to you even further, one step further, that if that's the way that we're living, it's because we've refuted what Jesus said about the use of his name. Let me say it another way you can't live sick. You can't live unsuccessful. You can't live without enough if you're effectively using the name of Jesus and glorifying God. Now, don't get me wrong. There are times, all of us go through times, all of us go through situations where, where our faith brings into reality that which we're believing for. For example, if you, if you had no need for healing, why would you call for a required in the name of Jesus? So there are times, there are periods. But we should receive what we're looking for. We should receive what we're calling for in the name of Jesus, shouldn't we? That's what Jesus said. And Jesus said that not just... The calling for and the walking by faith glorifies God. But you getting the results of your faith in the name of Jesus glorifies God. Look with me over to verse 16. Jesus has not changed subjects. He's talking about the same thing. He's just explaining it a little bit further. You have not chosen me, but I've chosen you. And I've ordained you. That you should go and bring forth fruit. And that your fruit should remain. Now notice the next, and, and please remember that the the uh, original Greek text that this was written in didn't have any kind of punctuation in it. Although I'm not saying the punctuation is wrong in this case. So there's no way to know. But notice that after Jesus makes a complete st- complete statement, let me say it again. You have not chosen me, but I've chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain, period. Now, the margin or the, um, uh, my Bible, the King James, has a colon there because there's an, an additional thought. But the thought is complete. He's just tagging on something at the end. And notice what he tags on at the end. He says, that whatsoever you shall ask, same word, call for, require, or demand, in my name, or I'm sorry, of the Father in my name, he may give it you. Now, there's two things, two ways that we already see that Jesus is talking about the operation of his name. One way, he says, whatever you call for requiring my name, I'll do it. Now, he says, whatever you call for requiring of the Father in my name, he'll give it to you. So not only is Jesus backing up his name, but the the Father's ear is open to the use of the name too. So you've got God and Jesus working on your side when you use the name of Jesus. Now, this this scripture has always troubled me, or, uh, well, always, until recently has given me a lot of trouble. Because it seems in the way that it's constructed, the sentence construction, and and that's not always uh, accurate as far as the translations are concerned. But I've done a lot of study, and this is one of the verses that I've studied because it did trouble me. And the sentence construction is accurate according to the original text. Now, here's the problem that I have with this verse. Jesus says, "You've not chosen me, but ordained me. Or, uh, You've not chosen me, but I've chosen you, and I've ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit." Now, the word "ordained" makes people think about ministry gift, ministry office. He's not saying you're apostles. I've chosen you to be apostles, and nobody else will stand in that place. He's talking about I've chosen you for a relationship. I've chosen you for a relationship. He's not talking about ministry office. John's not writing according to ministry offices. He's writing about his friend Jesus and what Jesus told his friends. So when he says, I've, you've not chosen me, but I've chosen you and I've ordained you for one purpose. Here's what God has called you for. Here's the reason that you're saved. That you should go and bring forth fruit. That you should go and bring forth fruit. And then, the, then he tags it on the end. Oh, not only just fruit, but fruit that remains. And then he tags this statement on at the end that whatsoever you should ask the Father in my name, call for, require, demand of the Father in my name, he'll give it to you. Another translation helped me out with this because it says it this way You've not chosen me, but I've chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain. So, as fruit bearers, whatever you call for or require in my name, uh, of the Father in my name, he'll give it to you. In other words, the fruit isn't just because you use the name of Jesus the name of Jesus belongs to the fruit bearer now the devil's going to sit on your shoulder and say well yeah that leaves you out cuz you're not bearing the fruit that God wants you to bear that's that's missing the point folks every child of god is a fruit bearer I think what's happened so often in us, I know I'm tempted with this too, is that we try so hard to bear fruit. Fruit is just the natural result of abiding in Jesus. You ever walked into your backyard where the fruit trees are? Maybe if you have fruit trees. You ever walked into an orchard or something like that? Maybe the nursery down the street or something. And you walk among the trees and you hear this great groaning and, 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 and turmoil. Because those trees are just trying to put out one more lemon. Yet that's the way we as Christians seem to live. We see things like bearing fruit and we think, oh, we've got to bear fruit. It's such a hard thing. We've got to bear fruit. So we're struggling to bear fruit. Folks, if you're abiding in him, he's the vine, you're the branch. It's a natural byproduct. And that's what he's talking about here. He's not talking about some special case, some special class of individual. Only those that are called to the ministry will bear fruit. He's saying if you're in me, you're a fruit bearer. So, here's your rights and privileges to use my name. Whatever you use my name for and ask the Father or demand of the Father in my name, he'll give it to you. Finally, the last one is over in uh, John chapter 16 in verse 23. This one is a little blind to some folks because there are two words that are used for ask. Notice in John 16, verse 23, and in that day you shall ask me nothing. That word ask is translated pray in other places. For example, it's translated pray in verse 26. The last part of the verse says, and I say not to you that I will pray the Father for you. So literally, if we're going to be consistent, let's translate that word pray. Because it does mean request. And so here he's saying, and in that day you shall pray unto me about nothing. Or you shall request nothing of me. Now what day is he talking about? He's talking about the day after he goes to the Father. The day of the church. He's talking about the day you live in. So what he's saying is. Prayer shouldn't be directed to him. That's all he's saying. He's saying prayer shouldn't be directed to him. Well where should it be directed then? It should be directed to the Father in his name. He'll make that clear as we go down a little bit further. And in that day you shall pray or ask me nothing. One translation says no more questions because he's been the one that's been their their, uh, um, Wikipedia for the last three years. He's been their walking Google site. Whatever they needed to know, they asked him. He said, it won't be like that anymore. I'm not going to be walking with you. But whatsoever you shall ask. Now, this is a different word ask. It's the same word that we've looked previously in John 14 and 15. It's the word call for, require, demand. But whatever you call for or require of the Father in my name, he will give it you. Now, folks, remember, ask, the word that's translated ask that we're talking about doesn't mean request. It's a legal term. It means these are your legal rights and privileges. Now, whether you use them or not, it's up to you. You can have a checking account and never write a check on them. Your bills could go unpaid with a bank full of money. Or a checking account full of money and never write a check. You have a legal relationship with the bank. You have legal obligations or they have legal obligations to you. Because you have put your money in their hands. In their care, in their trust. But you don't have to use them. In the same way the church doesn't have to use the name of Jesus. And I think to a great degree the church is sitting back on a whole big pile of spiritual resources. And not placing any demand on them complaining about why we're so broke. Why we're so defeated. Why is God letting this happen to me. When the resources in the name of Jesus are sufficient. If we'll just place the demand based on our relationship. Our relationship. Rightful relationship with God. And his word. If we'll just place a demand on those resources. By using the name. Jesus said. That's just Jesus. Believe him or not. But Jesus said we'd get results. It amazes me why the church would rather listen to somebody's excuse rather than what Jesus said. Because so often that's what's happening in the modern day church. The church is making excuses for why it doesn't work. Well, if it's not working, shouldn't we find out why? Rather than just saying, well, it's not the will of God or God has a different plan or God's trying to teach you something. Well, yeah. God is trying to teach you something. That's why the Holy Ghost had John write a book. And in that day you shall ask or pray a bit to unto me about nothing. Verily, verily, I say unto you that whatsoever you shall ask the Father in my name, demand of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Now, again, this doesn't have anything to do with attitude. It has to do with legal rights based on a relationship. Now, folks, why is Jesus saying it again? He's already told them that we'll use his name to do the same works that the father may be glorified in the son. He's already said if we abide in him and his word abides in us, we'll make a demand on whatever we will and it'll be given to us. And the father's glorified by us bearing fruit. He's already told us that uh, we didn't choose him. He chose us and ordained us, set us forth, set us apart to bear fruit, the fruit that remains. And as fruit bearers, whatever we call for in the name of Jesus The Father will do it for us. So now why is he saying this? Because he's showing them a different part of the relationship. Everything about the the things that John tells us in the name of Jesus are about two things. It's about relationship and knowledge. That's what the word abiding in you is. It brings knowledge to you of not only what God wants, what God wills, what God has determined to be his plan for your life, but also knowledge of what Jesus has already accomplished. That's everything about the New Testament. It's what Jesus has done for us. Therefore what God wants for you. That's the reason the New Testament is given to us. To bring knowledge. Of what Jesus has done. And what God wants. That's it. That's the Bible in a nutshell. And everything that Jesus says. About the use of his name. Comes down to those two things. Relationship. And knowledge. If you don't know what's yours. You can't use it. You ever, put your, you ever put your winter coat on first time in the winter maybe and stuck your hand in the pocket or found a little place where you had some money tucked aside and didn't know that it was there? Pleasant surprise. $20 in my pocket. Didn't know it was there. Well, it was mine all the time, but since I didn't know it was there, I couldn't use it. Right? What you don't know, you can't use. Why is he saying this this time? Because he's talking about a different aspect of the relationship. Verily, verily, I say unto you, whatsoever you shall call for or require of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Hitherto you have asked, same word, call for or require or demand, nothing in my name. Up till this point, you haven't used my name this way. In other words, Jesus is saying, that's why this is so important in John fourteen, fifteen, and 16 in my thinking, that he's saying, you're going to use my name in a different way than you ever have. Now remember how they've used it. They've cast out devils in his name. They've healed the sick in his name. In Luke chapter 10, the 70 went out and found out that not only did it work in the things that Jesus specifically said that they should do, like preaching, teaching, and healing, but they came back and said, even the devils are subject unto us in your name. So they're experienced with the power that's in the name of Jesus. Yet Jesus is saying, there's a different use in my name from this point forward. In other words, the name of Jesus belongs to us in a different way and carries different power. After his resurrection, than before his resurrection. Before, well, before his crucifixion. You remember when Jesus appears to the disciples? First thing he says, Matthew chapter 28, first thing Jesus says, All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Why did he say that? Didn't he have all power before he went to the cross? No, he didn't. He had limited power before he went to the earth, but went to the cross. Limited power here on the earth. Why? Because some of the power, literally authority, that was given to Adam had been transferred to Satan. But when Jesus appears to John in Revelation chapter 1, he says, I am he that liveth. I was dead, but now I'm alive and I'm I'm alive forevermore. I live and I'm alive forevermore. And then he said this, he said, and have the keys of hell and death. where did Jesus get those? He got those through his crucifixion, his burial, and his resurrection. He didn't have those before he went to the cross. You remember in Luke chapter 4. The devil shows. He's tempting Jesus. And he shows him all the kingdoms of the world. In a moment of time. You Remember. He says all these. I'll give to you. And the authority therein. And the glory that they carry. Because that's been delivered unto me. Where did the devil get it? God did not create the kingdoms of the world. Or give man the idea about government. Self-government. In order to put it in the hands of the devil. Where did that come from? That was part of the authority that was transferred to Satan when Adam and Eve fell in the Garden of Eden. They were the ones that had dominion over all the works of God's hands, but they lost that because they obeyed Satan. Now Jesus has come back and gotten a great deal of that back. Not all of it, because the devil has, still has a lease, but his lease is running out. The devil still is in control of world governments shouldn't be too hard to figure that out. Just open your eyes and read the news. That's why we have a responsibility as Christians to vote right. To vote as Christians, not vote as a political party. Now, it used to be a lot easier. Jesus told us very simply how world governments work. He said in two times in his earthly ministry, in Mark chapter 10 and Luke chapter 22, he used this example both times. He said... Those that exercise authority over... One time he says those that exercise authority over the Gentiles. Another time he said those that that are kings of the Gentiles. In other words, those that are given places of authority in world governments exercise lordship. The word lordship is the word control. So since we know it's in the devil's hands, how do we know how the devil operates? The devil operates through world governments to gain control. Jesus said, but in my kingdom it's not that way. In other words, here's the difference. He said, in my kingdom, the one that's the greatest is the one that serves the others. So all you got to do is look in political situations. Every political issue should be governed by what Jesus said about it. We know first and foremost that the the earthly governments, world governments are in the hands of the devil. Doesn't mean everybody that's a politician is an evil person. I I know of two that aren't. (laughs) Now, there may be a little bit more than two, but... They're sometimes hard to find, though, aren't they? Doesn't mean everybody's a bad guy that's in politics, but the system is governed by the devil. And anything that exercises or takes control from the individual is the devil's way of stopping God's plan in the earth. Anything that takes more money out of your pocket is the devil's agenda to rob you from doing what God might want you to do with your money. I don't. It's, it's amazing to me why it isn't that simple for folks. But I guess the reason it's simple for me is because I live my life, every part of my life, as much as I'm able, as much as I know to, by what the Bible says and not by what other people want me to do. I just refuse to let anybody do my thinking for me. And I learned that by listening to wrong teaching from theologians. When I saw that what they said was contradicted by what the Bible says, I decided early on, I'm not going to let somebody else do my thinking for me. Now, you choose for yourself. I mean, here it is, election time. You know, it's important for me to say things like this to increase my hate mail. (laughs) Because some people, no matter what you say, no matter what you do, they're going to be more Democrat than they are Christians. Some people are going to be more Republican than they are Christians. It used to be, when I was a kid, you could tell the difference in the two parties. Now everybody wants to control you. And the devil knows how the system works. Have you ever noticed that right before the election, you get all these TV ads? Everybody's standing up there. The governor's standing up there telling you what a good job he's done. You know why the devil does that? Because he knows most people are ignorant on the issues. And so he's trying to sway people with something that looks good for the moment. And he works the same way spiritually. If you're not knowledgeable about what the Bible says on any subject, he can take advantage of it. And at your own will. Can bring you into bondage. And that's what's happened to a great degree in this country. That's where we are now. Look at what's happening around us. We've got ISIS beheading Christians. And we've got the government. Telling us. Islam is a religion of peace. <laughs> this is not true Islam. Yeah. It is. And all you've got to do to figure that out. Is read the Quran. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, you don't understand the Koran. The Quran has competing verses. Yeah, that's right. The peaceful verses were up front before Muhammad ever gained control. The, the violent verses are the later ones that were written. Not that he wrote anything. He was illiterate, couldn't read or write. But people wrote down things that he said during his lifetime. And the violent verses are at the end. And the law of the Koran is the later precedes the earlier. So anybody that wants to use the peaceful verses and say Islam is a religion of peace doesn't know the Quran. Or at least they're, or maybe they're just trying to lie to you to fool you, take advantage of you. Now that doesn't mean all Muslims are evil people. Doesn't mean that, that there aren't peace loving Muslims. There are a lot of Muslims that don't live by the Koran just like there are a lot of Christians that don't live by the Bible. But that has nothing to do. I'll let that sink in a few minutes. But that has nothing to do with the basis of the religion. Islam is not a religion of peace. But look what's going on around us. We've got Hollywood telling us, oh no, that's just a a poor representation. Those are just a few right-wing nuts. Those are just the extremists. Well, the extremists are the ones that are controlling stuff. Where is the moderate Islam voice? Where are the Islamic moderates that are standing up saying, we denounce this violence because Islam is a religion of peace? It's not there. You know why it's not there? Because Islam is not a religion of peace. So that's how the devil controls things. Now, I personally believe. I'll give you my personal belief. You can take this for what it's worth. Just discount it all together if you want to. It doesn't matter to me. I personally believe that the work of the church is not to change the world through politics. We tried that. Didn't work. The work of the church, more and more, and more as the end approaches... Is to show that the name of Jesus is greater than anything else that's out there. The name of Jesus will break Islam. I believe the name of Jesus now. Is sufficient. To overcome anybody that wants to behead them. Paul talked a lot about those that were. Martyred who didn't receive their deliverance. Not that it wasn't available to them. that they chose not to accept it. That they might have a better resurrection. Folks if the name of Jesus. You remember when Stephen was stoned. When Stephen was stoned. He looked up. And he saw Jesus standing on the right hand of the father. Since the Bible says that when Jesus was raised. With God in heaven. He was seated at the right hand of the father. What do you think Jesus was standing up for? He did, uh, James, Stephen. Stephen didn't see Jesus in his seated position. He saw him standing up. What's he standing up for? He's standing up on the ready to, uh, to deliver him if he calls for it. I think the name of Jesus is going to be used more and more at the end, the closer we get to the end, to show the power... The exceeding greatness of God's power over anything and everything the devil can do. That's, now, now I, I realize that I'm open to criticism here on this issue. I realize somebody could say, well, Pastor Mike, it's easy for you to say standing in southern Orange County in a nice, warm or cool building, lights on, everything's comfortable. It's easy for you to say what somebody could do in the name of Jesus is if they were facing beheading. And you're right, it is easy for me to say. But I don't say it based on what I I think. I say it based on what Jesus said about the use of his name. I'm not even saying that I would have. The wherewithal. To use the name of Jesus in that situation. But it doesn't change the truth. The truth is. Jesus said whatever you call for or require in my name. That's what I'll do. Now folks I got to tell you. If somebody's standing over my head with a a sword on my neck. I'm going to use the name of Jesus. I I can say that with all confidence. What else would you say? What else would you use? But that's the world that we're living in. See, folks, we can't just say, okay, let's pray a prayer in the name of Jesus that, that the earth just gets better, that people just start doing better. You never see Jesus commission the disciples to force his name, the use of his name, on somebody that didn't want to receive. Never. Well, in the same way, you can't force on those that are committed to do evil or committed to sin, you can't force the name of Jesus to change them. You're never going to change the homosexual community by politics. You're never going to change the ideas of people that want to control the country through politics just by using the name of Jesus. But you can use the name of Jesus in individual situations in your life to overcome whatever is going on. You've heard me tell the story about John Lake, how that uh, in Africa, and uh, it was about 1911-ish, somewhere around there, I think. Um, no, no, that's not right. It was a little later than that. Anyway, in the uh, the early part of the 1900s, John Lake was in South Africa, and there was an outbreak uh, of... Uh, uh, some kind of plague that uh, that broke out, and america it was so great that America sent the Army Corps of Engineers and medical doctors and teams and stuff like that to Africa to uh, to help and oversee the thing. Well, when they got there, they found Lake John Lake, who was, uh, had been ministering in South Africa for a number of years to that point in time. they found him walking among the people without any kind of mask or protective gear or anything like that, and he 's ministering to the, to the people and, and stuff, and the doctors saw him, saw him walking around. There for a few, uh, you know, over a course of a few days, maybe a week. And when they first saw him, they thought, well, this guy, he's, you know, going to contract this himself and he's going to die. And, and, you know, here's the ignorance of the people over here not knowing what to do about this disease. And they saw that he never got sick. And so one of the, the doctors, the research doctors that was part of the team, asked him, he said, what kind of immunization do you use? And he said, Romans 8, 2. Well, you can well understand that the doctor didn't know what Romans 8, 2 said. He said, what are you talking about? What is that referring to? He said, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. He said, what does that mean? Well, when people were dying of this, this plague, there would be this uh, froth, this bloody froth that would come over, up in the, from their mouth, uh, sometimes from their eyes too. And, uh, and it would be just teeming with these, uh, these bacteria and germs and, and so forth, this virus. And so what he would do, what Lake did, is he just took a slide and he scraped off the, um, uh, some of the stuff from the, the person's mouth that had just, just died. And so then he, he put it under the microscope and they saw that it was just teeming with these germs and, and all this kind of stuff. And then he took, it, took the slide out from under the microscope and wiped it in his hand. Let it sit there for a few seconds and then put it back on the slide and put it back under the microscope and all those things were dead. You've heard me tell that story. I've used that story over and over again, many, many times. You know what? What I just found out this week, or was reminded this week, had forgotten and remember hearing it years and years ago, 20 years ago, but had forgotten. That plague was the Ebola virus. Isn't that interesting? And here we go again. So you get situations like that. It's the name of Jesus. Now, Romans 8, 2 is all about being in the name of Jesus. The spirit of life in Christ Jesus is another way of saying in the name of Jesus. Where he said the spirit of life in Christ Jesus is the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. That's simply saying being in Christ has set me free from the power of the devil. He's talking about relationship. He's talking about relationship. Now, you think I've lost my place, but I'm still over in John 16. Because that's what Jesus is saying about his name. The use of his name is in a different way concerning relationship. Verse 23. And in that day you shall ask me nothing. You shall, shall not pray about, to me about anything. Verily, verily, I say unto you whatsoever you shall call for, require, or demand of the Father in my name. He will give it you. Hitherto, up till now, have you asked nothing in my name. Ask, call for, require, demand. And you shall receive that your joy may be full. Now folks, realize that Jesus wants your joy to be full. That's hard for some folks to, to comprehend. That God wants you to be joyful. God wants your life to be filled with joy and happiness. Whatever is in your life that's making you unhappy, God's not behind it. In fact, he wants you to live in victory over that. Notice in verse 25, he said, These things have I spoken unto you in Proverbs, but the time comes when I shall no more speak unto you in Proverbs, but I shall show you plainly of the Father. When is that time? John remembers being baffled and and kind of uh, confused about some things that were being said 60 years earlier. But now when he writes, he, he realizes clearly and has realized for a number of years. This is what he was talking about. This is what he meant. And folks, I believe that's why the Holy Ghost inspired him to write and tell us. So that we'd see plainly. Verse 26, at that day, talking about the day of the church, you shall ask in my name. And I say not unto you that I will pray, here's a different word, here's the same word translated in verse 23, ask the first time, and I will pray the I say not unto you that I will pray the Father for you, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came out from God. Now what's he saying? He's saying the reason you have a legal right to use my name is because God loves you just like he loves me. Now, remember when Jesus said, when he started off, he said, whatsoever you shall ask, call, call for or require, required or demand in my name, I will do it. We could say from there and we could prove it from, the, from other scriptures as well. But we can conclude from that that Jesus and his name are equal. If you use his name and Jesus does it, then the name equals the man. Peter said the same thing when they healed the guy in Acts chapter 3. He said, it wasn't by our own power or holiness that we did this. It was the name Through faith in his name, even by him, does this man stand here before you whole. In other words, the name equals Jesus. The name equals Jesus. Now, how many of you have Jesus living in your heart? That means you've been baptized into the name of Jesus. The name of Jesus is not some good luck charm. It's not some magical phrase that we put at the end of our prayer to make sure God heard us or anything like that. It's not something that triggers... Of a power or a presence of God that we didn't already have. You live in the name of Jesus. Because Jesus lives in your heart just as real as your spirit lives in your body. You're pretty convinced of that, aren't you? That your spirit lives in your body? Well, if you're breathing, then you know that. It's just as real that Jesus lives in your spirit. So everywhere you go is in the name of Jesus. You can't do anything other than in the name of Jesus because he lives in you. He doesn't come and go. He doesn't depart from you when you mess up. You can't get away from him. Not that you'd want to. Everything you do. That's what Paul was talking about. He said whatever you do in life do all in the name of Jesus. Well how can you do that? You can't unless you're in him. But once you're in Him, everything you do is in Him. That's why you've been ordained as a fruit bearer. Because you're in Him. That's why God doesn't have to look and say, Well, you're a fruit bearer. You over here, eh, not so much. No, you're in Him equally. So we're all fruit bearers. And because we're fruit bearers, because the life of God dwells in us, And affects our lives. And affects our action. but affects every part of our lives. Then we have a legal relationship with God. A legal right. Because God loves us just like he loves Jesus. A legal right to the use of the name of Jesus. Let me prove it to you. Turn back with me to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. Folks I got to tell you. In some of this I feel like I'm going around in circles. I feel like I'm saying the same thing in different ways. Over and over and over again. And I don't apologize for that. Because hopefully we'll say it enough times. In enough different ways to wear the dawn on somebody. Matthew chapter 16. Here's the story of Jesus asking his disciples. Who do men say that I am? They responded. In verse 14. Some say that you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah or others. Say that you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And then Jesus said. But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, verse 16, and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you, but my Father which is in thee. My Father which is in heaven. Um, literally saying, you don't know this because of the miracles. You know this because of the witness of the Father in your spirit. And I say unto you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Peter is not the rock. The rock that he's talking about is the knowledge that Jesus is the Christ. Upon this rock, the knowledge of Jesus being the Son of God, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now notice verse 19. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. The keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now he can't give them to him then because he hadn't been raised from the dead. He doesn't have the name that's above every name yet. But as soon as Jesus is raised from the dead and he appears to the disciples, he said, all power or authority is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore unto all the nations and and teach them, make disciples. And these signs shall follow them that believe in my name. And he talks about supernatural signs. So he doesn't have the keys to the kingdom of heaven yet to give them. He can give them authority. He can delegate to them authority over sickness and disease and evil spirits on a temporary basis. But they lost that authority when Jesus went to the cross. They didn't have the power to heal the sick when Jesus was hanging on the cross. Because now Jesus is not operating on the earth in the same way he's becoming sin. He's being made sin when he's hanging on the cross. Nobody had authority over sickness and disease during that period of time. So it was a temporary thing, a temporary mission for a, temp- for a specific purpose and specified time. So now he's saying, I'll give unto you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. In other words, after I'm raised from the dead. They had no clue, but Jesus, of course, knew. He said, after the resurrection, I'll give unto you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now, what are those keys of the kingdom of heaven? There's a lot of people that say different things. And nowhere does the Bible specifically identify this list makes up the keys of the kingdom of heaven. But notice what Jesus said about the result of having the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Verse and 19 again. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And. In other words here is the result of having the keys. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. A lot of different people have different ideas and teachings and so forth. About binding and loosing and so forth. A lot of it I wouldn't give two cents for. So rather than get into binding and loosing. Binding just simply means prohibit or forbid. Loose simply means to To allow. Let's take it from a big picture standpoint and see what Jesus is saying. I'll give unto you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and you'll have authority here on the earth. Nobody could argue that that's what he's talking about, could they? And you'll have authority here on the earth. I'll give unto you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and you'll have authority here on the earth. Now, what do we know from other scriptures that we looked at and even some of the things that we've looked at this morning? What's the, the, the key to authority here on the earth? The name of Jesus. so the keys of the kingdom have to include the, his name don't they I think it includes some other things too I think it includes the word of God for example but we could certainly say the keys of the kingdom of heaven includes the name of Jesus because it results in authority well isn't that what Jesus is saying about the use of his name whatsoever you shall call for or require in my name that will I do it sounds like authority to me if you abide in me and my words abide in you what You shall ask whatsoever you will. And it shall be done unto you. He's talking about asking in his name. As fruit bearers. Whatever you ask. Call for requiring my name. That's what the father will give to you. He's talking about bearing fruit. He's talking about using authority. He's talking about the exercise of his name. Right? And notice that the Bible says. The Bible identifies very clearly. That those are the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Now folks I got to tell you. I use keys here on the earth just like you do. And when we use the keys, let's, let's uh, stop and think about it. How many of you have, have um, cars that still have the ignition switch? You know, I've got one where you've got the little key in your pocket and, and I don't have to touch anything, just, you know, go. But let's, let's go back to the, the few years ago where everybody had the key that you opened the car door with and the key that you put in the ignition. The key belongs to you and the car belongs to you, right? How much faith does it take to put the ignition to put the key in the lock and turn the lock? Anybody stand there and, and pray and say, oh, Lord, please let this work. <laughs> of course not. You know why? Because we know what belongs to us. The car is ours. Now, you stick your key in somebody else's car door, it's not going to work. Right? But if we get the right car and use the right key, it works simply. It doesn't take special prayer. It doesn't take special effort. You put the key in the, in the lock, turn the lock, and it opens for you. Then you get in the car, put the key in the ignition, turn the ignition, and the car starts. You don't have to pray. You don't have to think, oh, dear Lord, unless you know you've got some, you know, some mechanical errors or issues with your car. You don't stand there and sit in the driver's seat and say, what's your hope this works? Because you know what you have. You know the key is yours. You know the key fits in the car. You know the car is yours. And so it works. So when the Bible talks about faith in the name of Jesus, when the Bible talks about in Acts chapter 3, where Peter and John had faith in the name of Jesus, what does that mean? Does it mean that they had some special faith that nobody else can have? Does it mean they prayed some special prayer? Does it mean that that, that there was just some special moment when the the skies opened up to where it would work, but it won't usually do like that? It doesn't usually work like that, but at this moment, it worked like that. Is that what it means? No, they knew what they had. Peter and John looked at the guy and said, Look on us, silver and gold have we none, but such as I have give I thee. They knew they had the key. They said, in the name of Jesus, rise and walk. They knew they had the key, and they knew the key had authority over sickness. Folks, we think of faith as some hard, hard thing. The way that it looks to me like some people are trying to utilize the things of God and operate in the kingdom of God, it just seems too difficult. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Come unto me, all you that are burdened and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon me, verse 29 says, Take my yoke upon me and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly. Verse 30 says, For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. With what I see so many people struggling with, I think they're hooked up with the wrong thing. Jesus said it was easy. Now, the devil will tell you it won't work. The devil will tell you it's too hard. But Jesus said it was easy. Faith in the name of Jesus, faith to utilize the name of Jesus is the easiest thing there is. Simple. It's not some special thing that you've got to have just the right prayer or just the right words or, or pray in just the right moment or, or have done the, just the right thing beforehand. It doesn't mean any of that stuff. It means simply using the legal rights that belong to you because you're in Him. Now I'll tell you this. The church, the modern-day church, has faith in the name of Jesus to forgive sins. But the same name of Jesus that forgives sins is the name of Jesus that heals sickness and disease. It's the same name of Jesus that delivers from the power of the devil. Why does it work so much easier where it comes to forgiveness of sins or getting people saved? That's what I mean by getting people saved is forgiveness of sins. Why does it work so much easier in that context than it does where sickness and disease or, or delivers from evil spirits are concerned? Because we haven't preached anything except the forgiveness of sins part. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. The modern day church has done a great job in preaching about the forgiveness of sins. If they'd put the same time and the same effort into preaching the power in the name of Jesus over sickness and the devil. It'd be just as easy to get people healed as it is to get them saved. It'd be just as easy to get people delivered as it is to get them born again. There's no way you can read the book of Acts and conclude anything other than the name of Jesus meant more to them than it does to the modern day church because they're using it all the time because they're applying it in the places that Jesus said to use it it meant more to them they went out and preached Christ they're preaching the name of Jesus Jesus told Ananias in Acts chapter 9 when it comes to the uh, 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 when he sent him to Paul go lay hands on Paul that he might receive his sight Ananias starts arguing with the Lord and saying I've heard about this guy he's brought much havoc on the Christian church Jesus said, go your way, for he's a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name. Unto kings and Gentiles, to bear my name. What was Paul's mission in the earth? To bear his name. What does that mean? It means exactly the same thing that Jesus said in John chapter 15 to you and me and the, the other 11 disciples. Uh, you've not chosen me, but I've chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bear, forth, bear fruit. And that your fruit should remain. He's talking about bearing the name of Jesus. Everywhere you go, you bear the name of Jesus. Jesus. We need to think like that. We need to think this is not just me doing my thing. This is me bearing the name of Jesus. Am I treating it in a worthy manner? And I, Am I upholding the name of Jesus? Am I carrying the name of Jesus? Am I accompanying Jesus in such a way that bears his name with honor? We need to ask ourselves that question. Because you're just as commissioned as Paul was. You may have a different ministry work may have a different purpose in life, but it's just as real as what he gave to Paul. You've been sent into the earth to bear forth fruit. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the truth of the word of God. Thank you, Father, for the power that's in the name of Jesus, that which belongs to us because we are in him. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I want you to make a confession with me. Keep your eyes closed and your heads bowed. Say this after me I am in Christ. Therefore, I am a fruit bearer. I am a believer in Him. Therefore, the works of Jesus are works that I do too. I have been given a legal right to use the name of Jesus over sickness. And disease to break the power of the devil and to glorify God through his son, Jesus Christ. When I speak and use the name of Jesus, things change. God backs me up. Jesus performs it and supernatural works are realized. I do the works of Jesus because I am in Him. Amen. It's almost frightening to say that, isn't it? Because from our mind we're thinking, well, who am I to do the works of Jesus? You're the one He commissioned to, you're the one that He commissioned to do those works, you're the one that He gave a legal right to use His name. To do the same works as him. Thank God for the name of Jesus. Let's all stand. Hallelujah. Oh, that our eyes would be open to who we are in him. E.W. Kenyon, in his book, The Wonderful Name of Jesus, said something to this effect. He said, We're coming into a new land. He died in 1947 or 8, somewhere around there. He said this. He said, We've seen, seen examples, rare examples, of where somebody would stumble into the power in the name of Jesus and we would think they were superhuman. But he said, We're coming into a new land. We're coming into a day where an army of people will find that place and dwell permanently in the power of the name. I believe that. I believe that's the glorious church that Jesus is coming back for. We've seen people do signs and wonders. We've seen certain things, isolated incidents, but we've never seen anybody that lived there permanently like Jesus did. But we will. We will. That's what we're coming to. And it's going to take us accepting the entirety of what Jesus said belongs to us. And being willing to use boldly the name that's above every name. Amen. I want to be part of that group. How about you? Amen. God bless you. Have a great day. Come on back and be with us tonight if you can. You're dismissed.